Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be back. We do have a quick update uh, from uh, Friday night from our luau. Uh, we were able to raise together uh, $2,433 through our silent auction. So thank you for that. We've got that number in. And it may be a little bit more than that because uh, I know at least one person has mentioned, hey, I noticed that it didn't my, uh, my giving that night when, when I went to push pay didn't, didn't process. And maybe it's because it was kind of like spotty internet where we were. And so you might check that just to see if, if that went through, if you use push pay uh, to do that. But we do appreciate that. Such a fun, uh, fun evening. Uh, it's really a treat to be back with you. Uh, before I begin uh, the message today, I just want to let you know uh, it's a blessing to be able to have your support in going away in a sabbatical season. Uh, over the last three weeks, uh, I've taken time to get together with other pastors and uh, be praying for one another and just sharing our uh, our struggles because, believe it or not, uh, even a pastor struggles with things like faith and whether or not they're worthy and how to be a good husband and how to be a good father and all those things. Uh, we struggle with all that. So spent time in prayer and reading and studying and uh, just just trying to listen to God, and, and it, was, uh, it was a wonderful time. But I appreciate you being patient with me in those things uh, as I continue to grow in Christ, and then hopefully those things kind of come out from me, and, and you'll be fed through those experiences as well. So I just want to say thank you for that. We're starting a new series, and I'll be honest with you, I think it might be uh, my favorite series that, uh, that have, we have yet to do here at Wellhouse. I'm really looking forward to it. It, it means something uh, to me because a lot of these topics that we're going to be covering over the next few weeks are topics that uh, when I was growing up in church, we did not talk about. And if we talked about them, we talked down about them so that we wouldn't talk about them anymore, right? It was kind of like maybe if we put them in a special light, we don't have to acknowledge that these things exist. And so they can kind of become scary, right? And we, we titled this series Haunted uh, because sometimes things are scarier in the dark. When I was a young kid, my father worked at a local factory, General Motors, and, and every year they would put on this big haunted house that, that all the families could kind of come through. So the guys, I don't think they worked for a couple of weeks. I don't know this for sure, but it seemed like my dad would tell stories for a few weeks leading up to Halloween where they were basically building all of these contraptions at work to scare the living snot out of anybody that came in there, right? And they that's how they got their joy was scaring their children as they kind of walked them through all the things that they had prepared for them. Well, when I was young, I was sometimes a bit of a nervous guy, and I think my dad knew that. So he took me one day prior to the event where they would shut off all the lights and scare everybody. He walked me through exactly what was going to happen in the haunted house with all the lights on. So I got to see how the things were put together and how, you know, all the magic was made, so to speak. And you know what's funnier? What It was that I was not scared at all with the lights on. 
Sometimes shedding light on some things actually takes away some of the scariness, some of the feeling of dread or uncertainty. And so that's really what we hope to do through this series. Another reason why I really wanted to talk about this series is because uh, when I was growing up, my parents were kind of new to the whole church thing, and neither one of them were raised in church, and so shortly before I was born, they began attending a church. Um, both of my parents grew up in, in different households. Uh, my, my mom's uh, parents divorced when she was young. My, my dad grew up in a really abusive situation where he was physically abused by his father. He was emotionally abused by his mother. He was sexually abused by a pastor and a neighbor. Yeah, tough situation. So I was, as I was growing up, I got to see my father wrestle through a lot of things that he never was able to vocalize as a young man. And oftentimes it came out in forms of depression. And those things we never talked about in church. In fact, oftentimes, if we did hear somebody talk about it, it would come out in forms of, you know, listen, if you just have, if you just pray more, or if you have greater faith, you know, you're going to feel a lot better. And then I would watch my dad walk slowly to the car, and it was almost as if the weight of those words were crushing to him. In fact, my father no longer goes to church. You see, what happens sometimes is the weight of mental health and and depression begins to separate us from our faith, as if the two things can't coexist in one body. But the truth of the matter is, is that's not true at all. And so over the next couple of days, or next couple of weeks, I should say, we're going to walk through some things that I think maybe you or somebody that you know might be wrestling with. So if you know somebody you think this topic might be really helpful for them, then I encourage you to invite them and be a part. We're going to be talking about things like anxiety and doubt, resentment, anger. And so as we walk through those processes together, uh, I hope it's helpful for you and for your friends and and your family. Today, we're going to start off with uh, looking at a story uh, by a guy named Elijah. It's in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you can open up to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to start there. But if you have no, uh, no idea who Elijah is, I'll preface the scene and the story for you. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, Now, sometimes we kind of get confused because there's two names that sound very similar, Elijah and Elisha, and they're both prophets. They're both in the Old Testament. They're both kind of integral into uh, the story of the Old Testament, and so sometimes we can confuse those a little bit, but I'll tell you that Elijah comes first before Elisha, and an easy way to remember that is that J comes before S. That's how I began to remember that uh, when I was growing up, and that helped me, that Elisha came after Elijah as a prophet. And actually, Elijah kind of uh, shared his ministry or gave a double portion of all the things that he could do as a prophet to Elisha, his mentee. 
But Elijah did a lot of powerful things, a lot of miracles, uh, uh, and spoke to the people about God and tried to point them to God and help point them away from a lot of the evil practices that were happening in the time. And one of those evil practices was actually worshiping a false god. There was a, a, a false god named Baal. And people were worshiping this God. He, be, he kind of became the, the thing to worship. They would, they would build altars around and worship and cut themselves uh, to, to worship him. And so there's a story found in 1 Kings chapter 18 where, where Elijah calls all these people to, to kind of the top of the mountain. There's 450 prophets of Baal that are surrounding Elijah. And then there's him. The one guy who kind of stands up for God, and he says, all right, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a one-time showdown between the gods, and here's what we'll do. You, you, you put together an altar to your God, and then you put the, the meat on the altar, and then you just ask your God, you cry out to him to burn up that sacrifice, and we'll just wait and see what happens. So that's exactly what happens, right? They, they build the altar, they put everything on there, and then they cry out to Baal, all 450 prophets. They're crying out all day long. And then Elijah, you see kind of the, the, the mean, sarcastic side of him come out. He's like, maybe he doesn't hear you. You need to cry a little longer. Maybe you need to cut yourself for him. Maybe you need to sprawl out. So he's kind of egging them on, taunting them on, and nothing happens. So then Elijah says, all right, listen, my turn. He says, I, I need to prove to you that there is this one true God. So he builds this altar, puts the meat on it, and then he says, all right, I want you to dump water on it, dump more water on it. In fact, there's so much water that it, it collects in, in this kind of trench around the altar. Everything's saturated, and he, and he cries out to God, and he says, all right, I need you to make a believer out of these people. And God sends fire down, and it just, it, it basically evaporates everything around, right? And this is the story of Elijah, this powerful prophet that stands up to, could you imagine being the one person in a group of 450 other people that says, no, no, no I disagree. And sometimes it feels that way sometimes, right? But this actually happens to Elijah, but Elijah's story isn't done. In fact, the interesting part of Elijah's story is going to come next. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 19, this amazing, miraculous sight where God demonstrates his power and Elijah should be feeling on top of the world. Now we get to see what happens next. Now Ahab told Jezebel, who were, who were the kings at that time, Ahab was the king, everything that Elijah had done and how he had seen, uh, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. That's what happened to the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah say, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. So Elijah was afraid. Oddly enough, he wasn't afraid at the 450. Now he's afraid of one. And he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there. While he and, uh, went by himself for a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a, a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. 
I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the brush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And then the angel Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They put prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord's about to pass by. And a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he put his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here? This is the second time it's, he's been asked this question. And this is his same response. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, Anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, the son of Nisham, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel Meloi, to, uh, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel. And Elisha will put to death any uh, who escape the death sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. As this story kind of unfolds, we get to see this great man of God, a prophet of God, wrestling through what I think is depression. Now, we're not told that in those words, but certainly some of the, the ways that he talks and the ways that he acts kind of remind us of, of what it looks like to walk through depression. And there's a couple of myths that I think are important as we begin to look at this story that are important to debunk about depression. The first one is that there are various causes for depression. There are various causes for depression. It's easy, and I've heard it said before from pulpits of long ago, that the major cause of depression is a lack of faith. But that's not true. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Second thing is that depression is not a sin. 
I've I'm, I'm known many people who've walked through depression and feel like they were just a bad Christian and they were caught in some kind of sin because they were depressed. But depression is not a sin. Depression is not a sign of spiritual immaturity or a lack of faith. Depression is not a sign of spiritual immaturity or a lack of faith. And finally, depression does not decrease a person's value or usefulness. Depression does not decrease a person's value or usefulness. These are all things that we wind up learning through the story of Elijah as, as he wrestles with his time and saying, listen, I just want to give up. Is there any way you could just kind of kill me now? I don't see any hope. I don't, I don't see anything left. I just want to kind of cover myself up, go to sleep and not wake up. The first thing that we have to debunk is that there is, there is one answer for depression, and that's just simply not true. There are various causes of depression. Some of those things happen internally. We find that there, there are chemical imbalances in some people that, that cause depression over time. Some of those things come through external consequences of depression. If you grew up in a really abusive home, you, you may have experienced something that was external that then over time became internal problem for you. There are medical causes of depression and there are spiritual causes of depression. So we read this story in Elijah. Notice that as God begins to meet Elijah in his place of depression, he addresses a physical need first. Did you notice that? As the angel of God goes and ministers to Elijah, the first thing he does is he says, listen, this journey is tough for you. You need to eat and drink. And Elijah does that. He eats and he drinks and he rests again. And the angel of the Lord allows him to rest again. And then he wakes him up and he says, you need to eat and drink a little more. And that's exactly what happens that there's sometimes as we walk through difficult seasons of our life where we have to tend to the physical needs of our body. I've seen people who are just been running a million miles an hour, and you've been there before. You look and you think, man, why, why this week have I been so tired? Why this week have I been so on edge? Why this week have I been so short with people? And then you look at your schedule and you realize, man, just the physical needs of my life, I'm not meeting those things very well. And as God begins to address Elijah, he says, all right, we're going to take care of the physical stuff first because there's some physical things that you can address with depression. But that's not the only source of Elijah's depression. A part of it was that he felt alone in his struggle. Verses 10 and verses 14 remind us that he says, listen, I'm the only one here. I'm, God, I'm the only one left do you, do you not see that everybody else has abandoned you? Do you not see that everybody else has turned away and, and I'm the only one here? That he wrestles with this feeling alone, like he's the only one experiencing it. He's the only one wrestling with it. He's the only one going through it. He's the only one who knows how it feels. And eventually, God has to tell him at the very end, right? Did you notice how God slips this in as he sends him on a new mission? He says, oh, by the way, there's at least 7,000 in Israel who've never bowed a knee to Baal. So just so you know, you're not alone. 
Isn't it helpful to know in life that you're not alone with the struggles that you have? Isn't it a beautiful thing when you're surrounded by somebody who gets it? So beautiful. It's one of the reasons I love every year to go to uh, what we call preacher camp. There's about 15 of us pastors that gather together. And it's a group of people who we don't even have to say it, we just get it. We just know. We know what it looks like to try to lead a church and still struggle with our own stuff at the same time. It's so beautiful to know that you're not alone in the struggle, but that's exactly where Elijah was. Another one was a comparison to others. I don't know about you, but man, when I begin to compare with other people, I can quickly spiral down and say, man, I just don't measure up. And here in this story, that's exactly what Elijah does. As he begins to kind of take the spiral down, he says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And it's, it's essentially what he's saying is, look, everybody so far has, has never fully succeeded. And you know what? I'm not going to succeed either. It's pointless. Nobody's ever been the kind of person who's left the mark and changed it. Nobody's ever been able to break the chains every, every time. As soon as that person dies, then Israel falls right back into the trap again. So you know what? If that's my destiny, if that's what's going to happen in my life, just end it. Because there's times in our life when we begin to compare ourselves with other people, and it just feels so unfair. See, there's various causes to depression. Depression, as we mentioned, isn't a sin. It's not a sign of spiritual immaturity or lack of faith. And we see this in this story as well. It's unfortunate that in the church, it's unfortunate in our society that sometimes we see people who are walking through some kind of mental health battle and see them as a weakness. I want you to know that that's not how God sees you. If that's your story. Here, Elijah is leading the charge by himself with 450 people. And God chooses him for that. And he's getting ready to choose him for another mission as well. He never addresses with Elijah, hey, why are you sinning in this way? He's not pointing out a spiritual immaturity or a lack of faith in Elijah. In fact, he's getting ready to call him to something greater. Are there times that we need to grow? Absolutely. In fact, God continues to call us to grow in him. But as we wrestle with things in our life, one of the things that God never points out is how much of a sinner we are. He's nurturing and caring in our distress. In fact, the scripture says that he's close to the brokenhearted. See, I believe that of all people that we walk alongside of, those who are struggling are those who God is the closest to. We see that in this scripture. Last, depression doesn't decrease a person's value or usefulness. As the story here kind of ends, Elijah's called to anoint two kings and a prophet in the midst of his depression. It doesn't uh, diminish at all, it doesn't devalue at all his usefulness or his purpose. 
that God sees him in his distress and says, hey, you still have a purpose here. You still have things that, that are valuable here. That as you're wrestling through stuff, it's, it's not that it, it completely defines you. And that's wonderful news for us. I don't know about you, but I will tell you that there have been times in my life where I've wrestled through depression. And it's not easy. As you begin to kind of look at what that does to you and how it changes uh, your interactions with others and how you kind of cope with daily life, it can be really, really difficult. Sometimes harder for other people. And I think there's some things that the Bible helps us get to in our life to deal with and battle feelings of depression. The first thing I think that, that we see in this passage of Scripture is that we can acknowledge our feelings, but focus on our, fa our facts. Acknowledge our feelings, but focus on the facts. I don't know about you, but one of, the, one of the most frustrating things that you can ever do is try to talk reasonably to a child who is irrational at the time. Ever been there before? Doesn't matter if it's like a two-year-old or a six-year-old or a 16-year-old. If you're trying to deal with somebody who's irrational at that point, they've kind of lost all sense of reality and they're just acting full of emotion. It's really hard to be able to kind of have a, a good, healthy conversation with that person. And that's because our feelings can often overcome the facts of the situation. And so while it's important to acknowledge our feelings, because we can't change the way that we feel about something, it's, it's equally as important that we, while we acknowledge them, we focus on the facts. And this is exactly what happens in the story of Elijah. Right? He's feeling depressed. He's feeling like he wants to give up. He's feeling like it's all over, and he's feeling like he wants to die. And God helps him address the facts of what he needs to focus on. Listen, how about you lay down and rest for a while? Just rest. How about you eat and drink for a little bit? I'm going to provide you with some substance in life so that you can eat and, and address the things that have taken away from your body. How, how about this? How about you sit and you listen and you wait on God for just a little bit? Because I'm going to give you the facts of the matter. Even though it feels like you're all alone. Even though it feels like there's nobody on your side, nobody in your corner, nobody standing up to support you, that nothing in your life is really mattering at all right now. I'm here to let you know the facts, and the facts are those things you feel aren't true. See, if we get caught up in our feelings, man, they're so quick to lead us astray. Years ago, I, I got the opportunity to go and get trained um, in, in something called crisis prevention, stress management. And it's really interesting because this movement came out of the events that happened on September 11, 2001. What they found was that they would take search dogs to the rubble, and after a couple of days of not finding any bodies that were alive, the dogs began to stop hunting. It was almost as if they were becoming depressed because they couldn't find or do the job that they wanted to do. And what they discovered is that's not just true with dogs, that's true with humans too. That we have to process when things aren't going well. 
And so what they discovered from that is that as we go through trauma in our life, we kind of have two sides of our brain. We have a feeling side and we have a thinking side. And so in order to walk through a stressful event, it's helpful to acknowledge the feelings, but to elevate our thoughts, to elevate the facts. And so a lot of policing has changed. If you, say, if you have a police officer that comes up on the scene, they'll oftentimes ask fact-oriented questions. So that helps you re-engage the thoughtful side of your brain so that they can have a, a conversation with you. A lot of times as you talk to a counselor, they might ask you how you feel, but eventually they're going to get to some facts. Because our facts help us address the real situation. Elijah was alone. He was depressed. He, he felt like he wasn't good enough. But the facts were that Elijah was tired. He was hungry. He needed a new perspective. He needed to feel closer to the voice of God. Those were the facts. Second thing that we can do as we walk through seasons of depression or we help walk somebody else through the seasons of depression is to protect our mind and our heart. To protect our mind and our heart. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes this, uh, this out to us about the full armor of God. He says, put on the full armor of God so that we can protect ourselves from the evil one. And what I don't want you to hear me say is that all depression comes from Satan. I don't believe that's true. What I do believe is true is that Satan waits for an opportunity to attack you. In fact, I know that's true because what we read about in Scripture is that, that Satan tries to tempt Jesus. Do you remember this story? That Satan tries to tempt Jesus three different times and it doesn't work. And it says, so they finally left him and he waited. And catch this, this phrase. It says he waited until an opportune time. Now, I don't know what an opportune time is for Jesus. He kind of seems untouchable to me. But it, what it tells me is this, is that we all have an opportune time when Satan says, aha, here we go. Here's a weakness. And I'll tell you, in my seasons of depression, the times where I feel the most down or most depressed, man, Satan is right there chirping in my ear. And so it's so important to protect our mind and our heart. And for some of us, what it looks like is we need to turn off the news. For some of us, we just need to turn off social media for a little bit, right? For some of us, there's some people we need to stop talking through to that time because we know the things that they're saying are, are affecting our heart and our mind in a way that's not healthy for us. For some of us, the biggest voice that we need to turn off is the one that goes on inside of our brain. In fact, that person has the most influence in your life. And it's you. Paul says in Ephesians, man, put on the full armor of God. Put on this helmet that protects your mind. Put on this chest piece of righteousness that reminds you that you are his. No matter what you're going through. You protect your mind and your heart as you're walking through some of the darkest places of your life. The third is this, seek God even when it involves kicking and screaming. Seek God even when it involves kicking and screaming. If you have your Bible, flip on open or scroll on over to Psalm 42. 
There's a couple of verses in this Bible that I think oftentimes we take out of context uh, in this passage. It starts like this, this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God. And we stop right there and we're thinking, oh, I remember that song. Yeah, it's kind of a peaceful song. It's like, oh, yeah, I want you. But that's not really what's happening here. He's saying, man, I'm dry. I'm empty. And in fact, what happens after this, he says, where can I go and find you? Where can I go and meet you? I'm dying here. My tears have been my food day and night. Have you been there before? While people say to me all day long, where's your God? So here you are in the misery and people are like, all right, where's your faith at? If, if you're so great of a Christian, well, why is this happening to you? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of the Lord under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise along the festive throng. I remember the days where it seemed to be better, but man, I don't feel it now. They seem so long ago. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed in me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise him, my Savior, my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, the Mount uh, Mizar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love, and by night, his song with me, a prayer to my God of my life. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed in me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. When I was growing up, I thought the only things that I could come to God with were the good reflections of my life. And then I realized that God wants to hear from me even when it's kicking and screaming. Even when it's like, God, why are you doing this? Where are you? Man, I'm struggling and I feel alone and you feel so distant right now. If you ever read through the Psalms, you'll hear some, some gut cries from people who, who are angry and hurt, bitter and depressed. Job, Elijah, David, even Jesus cries out to God in the midst of pain because God would rather have your anger and your hurt than nothing at all. He's okay and he's big enough to handle your pain. The last thing that I think can help us as we walk through a season of depression is to surround ourselves with wise counsel. To surround yourself with somebody who brings not just information, but wisdom. You know what I found in my life, and I was sharing this earlier this week, is that I think everybody longs to be around somebody who reassures them that it's all going to be okay. Not, not in a placating way, not to say, all right, it's not big deal, but just to say, you know what, it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through it. To be around people who are wise. To continue to surround yourself with Scripture. Allow God to speak to you and through you. Be around mentors 
counselors, friends, but make sure that they are wise, that they're pointing you back in a direction of health and healing. They help you understand that God, though he seems so far away, that he feels so far away at times, is close to the brokenhearted. And that even though you're walking through a season, it is, as Solomon reminds us, a season. And there is a season for everything. One of the most beautiful things that the church can do and does every week here at Wellhouse is to gather around tables together. And unfortunately, in my past, and maybe this is true in yours too, is that this is kind of just another thing that the church did. We kind of quietly passed trays and we took a little sip of something, a little bite of something, and we kind of moved on. But what if it was meant for a time of healing too? What if it was meant for a time of like acknowledgement to say, you know what, I'm not okay, and that's okay. And you surround yourself with wise counsel who will pray for you, who will remind you that depression, hurts, anxiety, hang-ups, they don't decrease your value or your usefulness. It's not a sign of spiritual immaturity or lack of faith. And that God is near to the brokenhearted. As we dismiss the tables, we have one on either side. I would encourage you, if you know somebody who you think has been struggling, you might, you might know they've been struggling, you grab them and pray with them. Maybe they don't have the strength to do that themselves today. But if that's you and you've been walking through a hard season, may you have the courage and strength to reach out today to somebody around the table. Ask them for their prayers, their support as you walk this season. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word of life. We thank you that we get to witness and walk through both the highs and lows of your followers throughout history. We thank you for the transparency that we find in Elijah's story where he gets to the point and he says, man, I, if this is life, I don't want to do it anymore. We thank you that we get to see hope through that story. So today, God, as we dismiss to the tables, may your abundant light and life shine. May you minister in ways that we can't even imagine today as we surround one another with love and support through you. We pray all this in the power and might of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed at the tables.